Tonight, we are going to continue through the book of Acts. And um, uh, there's been a lot of joking around uh, in, in my family and among some others uh, on the fact that I have been asked to preach through a whole chapter of the Bible. Um, I was talking, look, I was talking to someone and I was like, I'm just going to have to do my best uh, attempt at like R.C. Sproling it, where he can talk about a massive passage in like 25 minutes. And after you're like, wow, that was amazing. And so I don't remember who I was talking to, but they texted me back. Was it you, Colin? Yeah, it was Colin. He texted me back. He's like, R.C. Sproul did it in three sermons. So... So this is bad. You know, I, I just got to say, this is bad. So we're going to pull an all-nighter tonight. Hopefully the food is going to stay warm. We're not going to do that. Harry told me I only have 80 minutes, so I'm going to keep it to that. Now, my, my wife said, uh, babe, just think big, big, big picture. So that's what we're going to try to do. Keep it big picture tonight. In all seriousness, though, uh, as you go through the book of Acts, one thing that you'll notice is that uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, very intentionally speeds through certain things that happen, right? It's kind of like when you're going through some of the Old Testament, there, there are uh, generations and there are years that are at, at a time, that big chunks that are just being flown through, and then there are other times that, that, uh, the, that intentionally it slows down and slams the brakes and dives into a specific instance in detail or event in detail of what was happening at that time. And the book of Acts is very similar to that. And so, uh, appropriately so, it's funny, I I was studying through this, and I'm going through chapter 3, and I'm like, oh man, this ties in a lot to chapter 4. I wonder if Harry will mind if I just kind of keep going. Uh, I'm not going to do that. But uh, it's this chapter, it really acts as, in a lot of ways, as a bridge between a few things that are happening in the book of Acts. Uh, A concise summary of what is happening here in Acts 3 is that Luke is really recording in detail one of the many miracles that were performed by the apostles, and this is of a man being healed, and this is all to set the stage for a clear message, and that is restoration can only be found in Jesus. It can only be found in Jesus. This is actually the only detailed example that we find uh, in the book of Acts of this kind of activity, activity in Jerusalem itself. Uh, I know Hector preached uh, the last Sunday evening on Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. And I want to actually read those verses to you this morning because uh, what we're looking at this morning is, or this evening is one such example of what it is that, that Luke summarizes there in those verses. And so Luke writes this in Acts chapter 2. If you're not there already, turn with me there. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. He says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so you have an example here that we're going to get into of 
one such miracle while attending the temple, as Paul just as, as Luke just recorded there, and an apostolic teaching that is taught in, in conjunction with this specific miracle and healing. I mentioned Acts 3 acts in some ways as a bridge here in the book of Acts, and it's a bridge between the explosive growth that uh, Luke records there at the end of chapter 2 uh, of the gospel itself and the soon-to-be-accompanied persecution that we're going to see. Think about it, Acts chapter 4, which comes after chapter 3, right? No surprise. Uh, we have an imprisonment that happens, right? Acts chapter 5, remember, there's another imprisonment that happens. Acts chapter 6, there's the seizing of Stephen. Acts chapter 7, there's the stoning of uh, of Stephen. Acts chapter 8, Saul ravaging the church all the way through until Acts 9, Paul's conversion. And so Acts 3 kind of bridges that gap a little bit between Pentecost and this explosive growth, and you start to realize what's coming next is going to be persecution. Uh, The church is in for some trouble. The apostles are in for uh, some resistance. We begin to see that uh, in chapter 4. And so the way that we're going to approach this chapter, chapter 3, is uh, we're going to break this narrative down, the scene down, into different sections. And we're going to look at five different sections that all culminate with the call to repentance and proclamation of hope and restoration in Jesus Christ. So five different sections. If you're not already there, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Luke records this. The first section here, the setting, the setting. Acts 3, 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That, that should already pull into mind what we just read in Acts chapter 2 at the end, right? You have two of the apostles here, that were going to the temple. We just learned that they were all going to the temple daily, going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So you have Peter, well-known apostle, and John, one of the sons of Zebedee here. And and interestingly enough, John uh, is only found, only mentioned in pairing with Peter as you go through the book of Acts. Peter was playing a very prominent role at the establishment of not only churches, but the, the establishment of the church in Jerusalem. Believers were attending the temple daily, as Luke wrote in Acts 2.46. Uh, the ninth hour would be 3 p.m. The, the day starts at 6 uh, a.m., according to the Jewish custom there. So you have uh, this, this afternoon setting that the apostles are doing what they had committed to do daily already, to go to the temple. So you have the setting itself, and then the next section here, the request. The request, verse 2. And a man, lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Acts chapter 4, 22 tells us that this man was over 40 years old, and we see from this account that this man had been lame from birth. This was not a new ailment to him. This was not a new injury to this man, and uh, it was uh, uh, so prevalent over his life that he had to be carried and laid at the, date daily, uh, at the, at the gate daily. Uh, 
This is most likely a gate that was along the eastern wall. And, and this man, at this point in, in this scene, is, is in the act, the actual act of being carried to his resting spot. This isn't foreign to us as New Yorkers, right? There's plenty of places we can think about that we walk down certain streets or go into certain subway stations and uh, we we kind of expect to see even certain people waiting there uh, asking for help, asking for for a handout or, or, or food or something like that. This man was laying in his usual spot asking for help. And it makes sense that this is where he would, uh, he would uh, be laid daily, situated near a high traffic area. Uh, you, he would expect much pity by those who were entering into the temple. And you wonder, was this man even capitalizing on the generosity that was being shown among believers back that, that uh, Luke records in Acts 2, 44 through 45? Maybe, maybe there had been, he had gotten some wind of people selling all of their stuff and, and living generously among each other. And so he knew that he could target maybe these apostles here. I, I think it's fair to say that he would have recognized Peter and John he, he very specifically and, and intentionally calls out on them. I don't think it was just that they were next in line. So seeing Peter and John go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So you have this lame man that is being carried. He sees Peter and John coming in along probably with the rest of the crowd and looks to them and asks for help. And so what's their response? How do they respond to this request? Verse 4, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Notice he gets the apostles' attention here. It says he calls out to Peter and John asking for alms and he gets their attention. Peter, the the leader here in this bunch, gazes at this man, directs his gaze at this man. And interestingly enough, although Luke already recorded that in verse 3 that this man saw Peter and saw John, isn't it funny that Peter says, look at us? Why? The man is clearly already looking at them. Why would he, would he, he, he why would Peter, the, the, this man who is a prominent role among the apostles, why would he say, look at us? Well, he wanted this man's undivided attention. It wasn't just pick us out in a crowd and we made eye contact, so, so ask us for something. No, no, no. It, stop everything else you're doing and look at me. Focus. Focus on what it is I'm about to say and what is about to be done. The lame, lame man's response is obedience, and he locks in on Peter and John. He locks in on them, probably still at that point with misguided expectations and desires. Peter knew what this man was after. 
Right? He wasn't being fooled. He didn't think that this man uh, knew that they were apostles and, and what he really wanted was to be healed or, or some blessing from them. He knew exactly what it was that this man was after, so much so that, that Peter acknowledges it. He acknowledges, I know what it is you want, and I don't have that. I don't have that to give to you, but we're going to move on to something, straight to something much better than you are sitting here, laying here asking for. And also notice that Peter switches from first person plural to first person singular. It starts, look at us, and when he fixes attention on them, Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. What's happening? It is a personal interaction now between Peter and this lame man. And, 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 and the Lord is about to use Peter in a great way, as we're going to see, in order to uh, uh, set the stage for the teaching that Peter is about to give. And notice the language of the healing itself, of the blessing itself. He says, in the name of Christ, of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What was the offer here? What was the gift that the Lord was about to use Peter to give to this man? It wasn't money, it wasn't resources. It wasn't something temporal. It wasn't something that would be short-sighted for that moment, but it was restoration in Christ, a complete healing in Christ. And just like the miracles of Jesus, the purpose, uh, when you think about the miracles that Jesus did, what, what, what did that either follow or what did that precede? Usually it was within the context of teaching that was about to accompany that act. All right? And that, that teaching would often match the, the, the healing itself. Right? Did Jesus heal many people? Yes. Did he feed many people? Yes. But was that his primary mission? Was that why he walked this earth? Uh, to, to make people uh, physically healed and whole? No, it was his teaching. It was pointing people to the only way of salvation, that he was the only way of salvation to with the Father, from the Father. And so we see the apostles doing the same thing. We see God, the same power of God that, that was displayed through Christ in his ministry. Now they were serving Christ, and we see that same power of God through the apostles. I always think it's good for us to remember the, the amazing shift that we're seeing here. And remember, this is, this is Peter, right? You, you guys remember who Peter is, right? It wasn't that long ago, a number of months, that this was the Peter that was denying Jesus, right? Uh, this is the same Peter that, yes, was restored by Christ, but the same one that was denying and shameful of being a fo follower of Jesus. And now look at what Peter is doing. Peter heals a man. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one who had not long ago been put to death, he's drawing attention to himself now as a follower of Christ. And why is he doing this? Well, it's to once again teach the provoking and controversial message of the gospel. And so this man gets healed. And this isn't one of those 
healings that uh, it requires someone to still kind of help the person to walk, right? It, it wasn't a partial healing. It wasn't something that needed to go be verified by doctors at all. This is immediate and obvious healing. So much so that, that Luke, this great physician, draws attention to specific joints and specific limbs that had been healed and supernaturally strengthened together. This was a complete healing, and, 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 and the coming teaching was continued evidence that, that these men were followers of Jesus. And when Jesus restores, when Jesus Jesus heals, it is complete. It doesn't require months of physical therapy at this point. No, this man is completely healed. Acts chapter 4 verse 13 says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And, And they recognized, listen to what Luke writes, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Look look at the healed man next to them. Listen to the teaching. We've seen this before. These men have been with Jesus. This is called even a, a notable sign. It was evident to all, Acts chapter 4, verse 16. So Peter helps this man up. But not only does Peter help this man up, look at what Luke goes on to write. Verse 8 says, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This man was made so strong that, that he leaped. Uh, this is a natural response to feeling better, right? When, when, you know, when, when you're sick and you're not feeling well and you don't want to eat anything, or you just want to kind of stay in bed, uh, you can't always pinpoint the moment that you feel better. But when you do, you're ready to just hit life hard, right? You're just ready to run at it. I remember when I had my uh, wisdom teeth taken out a number of years back. Uh, I had all four of them removed. This is in the throes of seminary, and it was just an exhausting time, and I, I couldn't eat the food that I wanted to eat. I had to eat a bunch of soup and things that no one really wants to eat. Sorry if you love soup. I'm not that guy. Um, just a few days later, though, uh, uh, I was like, I'm, I'm feeling better. This is great. And so what do I do? Uh, we, I'm like, I'm diving in. I'm ordering pizza. And uh, it was it was. A bad choice. It was way too early. I was way ahead of the game, and the next couple weeks showed that a lot of healing still had to be done in my mouth. Uh, but, but I was ready. I, I wanted to just die. I didn't want to just kind of start to add some solids to my soup. No, no, no. I wanted to, I wanted to, to leap into this. And often, and we can relate with that when we're feeling better. We, we just want to uh, jump for joy. We just want to dive into whatever we've had to, to kind of hold back on. And different than me eating things I shouldn't have eaten, so close to my wisdom teeth being taken out, this man's leaping and standing and walking. It wasn't premature, was it? No, he was completely healed. This man could leap because he was healed. He was made strong. And this isn't something that the next day he'd wake up and say, oh, I, I, I kind of overdid it. I kind of overdid it. I need to, uh, maybe I could find Peter and John for, to complete what they started yesterday. No, this man was healed, true, full healing. And this man didn't continue to beg, did he? 
He didn't, he didn't say, wow, I'm feeling so much better. I'm just going to sit here. While you apostles go in. I'm going I'm to get some more alms from other people. No, no, no. That's not what he did. He immediately went along with them, continuing to walk and leap, not bringing attention to himself but not, or the apostles, but bringing attention to God in praise, walking and leaping and praising God. Imagine the commotion. This was a well-known man that, was mom- that moments ago was being carried to his normal resting spot. And now this man is walking and leaping and praising God. In verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. So they all recognized him, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So notice, uh, I love how beautiful this, the, the narrative is and even Luke's writing style here. You've got, you've got, you've got Peter and John in view and then, and then the camera pulls back a little bit and now you have this man that's being carried to the gate in view asking for alms uh, and this healing that happens and then as if pulling the camera out even more, now you have all the people involved, the people that were already there. Now Luke is making it clear now we're going to see how everyone else plays into this picture. We're going to see uh, why, why this was done even in such a public setting. Not only, and this is not only because this is a publicly affirmed miracle, though it was. This man was recognized. And what's their response? Well, it's the same response we would have, right? Wonder. Amazement. They knew There was no question in their minds. They knew something had happened to this man. Something changed here. Something supernatural just happened. And they're sitting there in wonder and amazement at what happened. Well, that's the result of this request. And now we're going to move on to the reason. Uh, Why did this happen? Why was this man healed? Why did Luke decide to record this specific healing? Acts 3, 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. This is... This is an energetic scene, isn't it? This isn't people kind of whispering to each other, Hey, did you see... That's the same guy, right? He was, just, he was just over here being carried. No, people are running. Hey, did you hear? Yeah, that guy. The same guy that's laid there every single day. He's leaping. That's him. Do you hear him? He's praising God. They're, they're running to this scene to figure out what's happening here. And this man would not let go of Peter and John. This has become quite the scene here. Uh, They're at Solomon's portico. This was a a common meeting ground for the Jerusalem Christians. Acts chapter 5 verse 12 tells us that. Even Jesus had intense, inter- had tense interactions with Jews and Pharisees here at the same location. Uh, John 10.23 is one such example of that. And so what does Peter do? Does he say, okay, John, there's a moment we've been waiting for. You know, that healing ministry we've been talking about. We're going to get it started here. Everyone just line up. We're going to start healing. No, no, that's not what he does. He takes advantage of the situation to show the purpose of this healing. 
Verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. We can pause there for a second and say, man, Peter, you got to work on your people skills here. Like people are like jumping around in amazement and they're really like excited here and you're you're crushing these people here. You're, you're rebuking these people. Peter, you're not answering the question that they really have. Like, how did this man get healed? You just sucker punched them, really. He says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter didn't take the opportunity to perform more miracles. No, no, he took the opportunity to to preach the truth. And the focus of ministry here remains at this point still on the Jews, still on Israel. It had not transitioned to the Gentiles yet. Thus, even uh, him specifically saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, our fathers. Remember, he is talking to an ethnic people here who had a history Peter redirects the attention off of man and onto God. Instead of welcoming the amazed crowds, instead of calming them down first and saying, hey guys, I want to I share something really great that just happened here and you can be healed too and let's just kind of sit and discuss this and talk about it. No, no, he, he jumps straight into chastising them. Straight into chastising them. In essence, he gives a long answer to an implied question. It's the right answer. It's the right approach. He's telling them what you're amazed by was done in the power of the one that you murdered, Jesus. And, and only in the sovereignty of God and the eternality of Jesus can Peter talk about Jesus both in past tense, right? His previous death and humility and also talk about him, get this, in present tense, his current life, his current power. What an amazing statement that he makes here that can only be said about, the, the, about Jesus and his sacrifice. He's telling these people, you killed Who? The author of life. You ended the life of the author of life. What's the whole point? Well, he's telling them, look, you were were wrong in putting Jesus to death. It's almost to say, everyone's looking, wow, look at this guy, he's healed and everything, and he almost moves the man aside and says, you guys are guilty of something. You put Jesus to death. 
You put Jesus to death. But God raised him. And he's alive today. Then he kind of pulls the man back in. This miracle, this miracle, this man leaping and jumping and praising God is a sign of this. And it attests to the author of life who is still alive today. And this transitions to the gospel message. And and then now Peter begins to make it even more personal for those listening. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter is so skillfully bringing prophecy straight to bear on the hearts of those listening. But notice the, the tone of what, what, what's happened here. The, the tone of grace. The tone of forgiveness. The tone of the Lord's faithfulness. Of blessing. He, he even still, the, remember, the, these are the ones that, just, that he just accused of putting Jesus to death. He still calls them brothers. Uh, not, not brothers in the faith in Christ, but fellow Jews. He's reminding them, I'm one of you, Brothers. And he also makes it clear that God's sovereignty is on full and was on full display in their actions against Jesus. And that all of this was a part of his eternal plan. Their ignorance that led them to put Christ to death, to choose to to release the, the true criminal, instead see Jesus be crucified, was a part of God's ordained will. But even with that being the case, even though they acted in ignorance, even though this was, part of, this was a part of God's sovereign plan, repentance was still required, wasn't it? Even though they acted in ignorance, repentance, a, a radical reorientation of life, as one commentator put it, was still required. They still needed to turn from their unrighteousness, from their wickedness, from their, their, their evil, wicked hearts, and turn toward righteousness. Repentance was still necessary. And at this point, Peter is focusing much on the positive Blotting out sin. Look at the language that he uses here. Blotting out sin. Times of refreshing. uh, Talking about the sending of the Messiah. A time of restoration. Reminders of God's covenant with Israel. Blessings for ethnic Israel first before even the Gentiles. He's telling them that, that even though this is the case, even though you are guilty of putting the Messiah to death, God made promises to you, Israel, and he will still keep them. And Peter continues to pull this thread from the Old Testament. Look at verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Remember, Peter says, he addresses them as men of Israel. These are those who would have been holding to the teachings of their prophet Moses. Your prophet. The one that's held in high regard. Uh, The one that, as as you read through the book of Hebrews, uh, in the beginning of Hebrews, the one that the author of Hebrews is even using as 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 a lesser to greater to show the superiority of Jesus over the prophet Moses. He, Moses, spoke of Jesus. But it wasn't just Moses. It wasn't just your prophet Moses. Look at what he goes on to talk about in verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham in and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed verse 26 God having raised up his servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness I want to remind you that God sent Jesus to the Jews first. And he did this with a desire to see his people saved. Yes, this message went, ended up going out to the Gentiles, but we even see in the ministry of Jesus that his focus was on the Jews, on, on, the, on ethnic Israel, on the people of God. But as Romans 11 tells us, their rejection paved the way for Gentiles' inclusion. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 11.25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Yes, there is a partial hardening for Israel, but notice even after their rejection, after the Gentiles' inclusion is complete and grafted in all Israel, the ethnic people of God will be saved for those who believe. And as Peter, after this healing, is now looking out to the Jews, looking out to the the men of Israel, he knew that God's promises to them were still alive and present and well. That God was eternally faithful to them. Yes, much great grace and care and positive tone in what he is saying here, but this is not without an implied warning. Continue to reject Jesus, and you'll be cut off from the people of God. 323 says, And it shall be that every soul who does, li- not, who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. What's his point there? You may have acted out in ignorance, There is an extension of grace for all who would submit to the name of Christ. 
But if you don't, if you continue to reject Jesus, you will be cut off from the people of God. Don't take advantage of the kindness of the Lord that is meant to lead to repentance. We come to the end of this story, of this scene here. Verse 26 that I read already, God having raised up his servant, send him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And you expect to turn the page. In my Bible, it's another page. Maybe look down to the next verse in chapter 4, and you expect to see a continuation of this teaching. But, but that's actually it. It's kind of an abrupt ending. Why? I'm not going to step on whoever preaches next toes, but something happens. Someone cuts them off in the middle of this because they were teaching the people, as it says in verse 2, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they get arrested. Just like that. This is while they're still speaking. It's an abrupt ending here. An abrupt ending. And although it is an abrupt ending, Ending, there is so much that we can glean from today as we just think about this chapter itself. And before I even get to just a couple notes of application here, I just want to leave you with an encouraging note uh, that in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it does say that many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Uh, so we see that the, the teaching of truth, the proclamation of truth, had its intended effect. And so when we think about this, we think about this man being healed, and we, and when we hear the, the teaching that Peter went on to teach in conjunction with this. first thing that comes to mind is if, if there's anyone here tonight that is maybe hearing this message of the gospel for the first time, and, and maybe wondering, what's the big deal about this Jesus? What's the big deal about sin? What's the big deal about repentance? Uh, let me just tell you that there is a holy God who has created this world. He's created you. He's created me. And not only has he created the world, but he is actively today, right now, sustaining every piece of creation. That this holy God created mankind and mankind fell, sinned against God, went against God's righteous, perfect standard, and that put God, that put man at enmity with God, separated mankind from God, from the perfect creator. So created a problem. A problem because God is holy and just, and because he is holy and just, he must punish sin. And the Bible tells us very clearly that God will punish sin. His wrath must be poured out because he is perfect and his standard must be upheld. And so for each and every one of us, we have broken the law of God. We have broken his perfect statutes, his perfect commands. And it puts us in a position of rightfully be, being under his wrath. And yet, as Peter pointed out to the Jews a couple of thousand years ago, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, as Philippians 2 tells us, uh, God came down on the form of man and lived a perfect life, having sinned not even once in his thoughts, actions, words deeds, any aspect of his life, all for the purpose of hanging on a cross so that his blood would be shed 
so that he would be the final sacrifice. And there were a number of things that were happening there on the cross. Yes, he was being brutally executed on, uh, on a cross. And, and, and his body was being broken and his blood was being shed. But more so than that, greater than any of that pain and anguish was the cup that he asked in the garden if, it, if there was any other way that this cup could pass from him. And that was the wrath of God for sin. For the sin of those that would be a part of his people. So for anyone here this evening that is still in their sin, for anyone here this evening that is thinking that they will stand before God, the holy creator, one day and, and look to their own life and, and say, I, I, I've been a good enough person, right? I've, I just came to an evening service at a church. That's got to count for something, God, right? No, no. Perfection is God's standard. And only Jesus has met that standard. And so faith in him is the only way of salvation. So the same call to repentance that Peter gave to the Jews is the same call to repentance that, that we call out to you this evening. Repent. Turn from your sins. Confess that you are a sinner before God and rest in his grace. Place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. If you have any questions about the gospel, I'd love to talk to you more about that after, and I'm sure Harry and, and many others would love to dive into more specifics about the gospel. Your sins can be forgiven. It's the same message Peter was preaching then. And for the Christian, as we think about this story, about this scene, rest in the faithfulness of God that we see on display in this chapter. The, the, the gospel message going forth to all the world while God's faithful promises to Israel are still being upheld. When you come across a promise in your Bible, and even when you're working through the New Testament, and you come across something like in Philippians that says that, that, that he will complete the work that he has started in you, uh, or that your sins will be forgiven, or that uh, your, the uh, law and its legal demands have been nailed to the cross, and your debt of sin has been paid, and you come across these promises of God, and, and the hope of eternal life, and the hope of glorification, uh, and, and of being able to stand before God one day in eternity, and worship him with without sin, you can cling to those promises because they come from, as Paul puts it in Titus, from the non-lying God, God who never lies. When you come across promises in his word, just know you can cling to those. He is faithful to them. He is faithful to them. It's all a part of his sovereign plan. So through Jesus, there is a call to repentance and the promised hope of restoration and life for all who believe. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, even how you have used Luke to record in detail this specific instance of, of healings that are, uh, were uh, tied to the great truth and message of the gospel. Uh, Lord, allow us to uh, spend time uh, basking in and marinating in uh, the many ways that you used uh, men and women throughout the book of Acts to proclaim truth, to see the, the gospel message go forward and the church be established and grow. Lord, allow us to uh, rest in your sovereign work of salvation and sanctification in our lives, knowing that you are faithful. Uh, you cannot lie. Your promises hold true. 
Help us to rest in that. We love you and pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only name that has been exalted above any other name. Amen.